Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Newly. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How about you? I am well, and it's quite an early morning in Singapore. And thank you so much for coming on the show. You're currently writing for the Wall Street Journal in Asia, right? That's right. Newly, we have met and we have, have a couple of conversations and it's great to get you on the show because you are someone who I've always been wanting to get on. I want to get the start to get to know you better. How did you get started in journalism and eventually you focus on technology reporting in the Asia region? That's right. Well, uh, I started working in journalism about 10 years ago and up until a couple of years ago, I was based in Bangkok where I was working as a freelancer, doing everything from radio reporting for ABC News to travel writing to a lot of, later on, a lot of business and economics reporting for places like Bloomberg, BNA, and a lot for the Wall Street Journal. And then coming up on two years ago, now I joined the journal here in Singapore, and I was always interested in writing about tech. And I also worked as a freelancer for Quartz, the Atlantic's uh, business site, where I, I did some writing about tech in, in Asia. And so, so I joined here a couple years ago, and I think it's a fantastic beat to cover because there's so much interesting stuff happening, lots of interesting characters, and you know, people, so many of our readers are in the US, and tech being interesting and dynamic as a sector and increasingly important to all kinds of companies, I think people are really interested to know what's happening here in Asia with you know, a home to so many, so many people and so many growing economies. And particularly in the past few years, most of the US tech companies have actually seen Asia as the largest growth region for them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, just here in Southeast Asia, for example, we have 600 million people. That's an enormous amount. And from a corporate perspective, companies are always interested in growth. And so if you're a big tech company and you're quite well, you have a lot of users, let's say in the US or Europe or other developed countries, you have to be thinking about where your users are going to come from in five or 10 or 15 years. And so when you look at big countries like India or Indonesia who are, that are already home to huge populations of people and still hundreds of millions of people in those countries have yet to come online, that's an enormous opportunity for new growth, especially with the proliferation of low-cost smartphones and internet access being increasingly available. These are huge, huge populations of people that tech companies really want to be able to tap. As you have actually covered Southeast Asia from the perspective of ABC and also Wall Street Journal, my question is, what are kind of interesting lessons that you have learned in your career? That's a good question. I think one topic that comes to mind is to always focus on the fundamentals. I went back to grad school several years ago and looked at business and economics reporting and, and had to take financial accounting and corporate finance. And as a, someone who was a literature major in college and was used to the humanities, those were really eye-opening classes because uh, it teaches you that when you're looking at how companies operate, you have to think in really critical and analytical terms about revenue and profit and how people are getting funding and whether the numbers are all adding up essentially. And so I think in the I think one of the challenges in writing about tech is that there's so much hype in involved. And people kind of tend to suspend their, their disbelief when they look at a shiny new object or a promising new business model or a quote-unquote disruptive new product. And it's important to, I think, always keep in mind that these are companies, yes, a lot of them are revolutionary, 
but they all ultimately are companies that are trying to make money that the normal laws of finance apply to. And even with interesting trends in venture capital and that sort of thing, you have to always keep in mind that if the numbers don't add up, they're not going to be viable companies. So other than covering interesting startups in the region, what other areas of coverage do you do in the Wall Street Journal here? Well, I look at essentially what I sort of think of it in terms of what the big global tech companies are doing in Asia. So Google, Twitter, Facebook, those, those sort of big companies. I look at what their challenges and opportunities are in the region, how they're catering their approaches to different markets. Uh, as you said, the interesting startups that might be unique to the region, I think so many of our readers are interested in. I like to look at what's happening with venture capital funding, that sort of thing. And then being part of a, a, a really fantastic global news organization also gives me the opportunity to help out with stuff that has nothing to do with tech. So not long after I started, the Malaysia Airlines flight went missing from Kuala Lumpur. So I was able to help my colleagues out in covering that for several weeks. I was back in Thailand not long ago during the most recent military coup to help my colleagues cover that. So I am first and foremost a Wall Street Journal reporter who's who's available to help out on any kinds of interesting stories and and important stories that we do for our readers and then and then obviously my my main beat is tech across Asia specifically Southeast Asia but I'm um, also more and more interested in India because of all the interesting stuff happening there and that's the st- subject of today and of course we are going to talk about a very interesting US company by the name of Facebook oh you use Facebook, right? I do, of course. Yeah. yeah. And we do know Facebook as of today is about 1.3 billion users. And it's probably having a market capitalization of about 100 billion. And it has a highest growth in Asia is actually growing at a very high rate. I think the last growth was something about 20 to 30%. And it's poised to grow. What I wanted to get you to do today is that you have done a lot of coverage on Facebook's internet.org initiative in Asia. Maybe, can you just give me a sense of what is the purpose of internet.org to Facebook and what is its footprint here, and particularly is in India? Sure, Bernard. Internet.org is a blanket term that, uh, that Facebook used to describe a lot of different initiatives in which their aim is to connect people in developing worlds. They're doing work with, for example, uh, drones that could deliver internet access. And this one in India, which has now actually been renamed after a lot of criticism of the program in places like India, they've called it now Free Basic. That's the name of a specific part of the Internet.org initiative in which Facebook works with telecommunications providers, dozens of countries around the world, to offer free internet access via a special app. That app used to be called internet.org, now it's called Free Basics. But basically the way it works is if you're in India, let's say on a certain telecommunications provider in India, it's Reliance, you can open your smartphone or your feature phone that has web access and you can go to this this Free Basics app or, or type a URL into the mobile browser and basically what it presents you with is a page where you can access uh, Facebook, of course, Messenger, but then a slew of other services to get health and educational information, that sort of thing. Facebook says it's a way to basically just allow people to get online in countries where internet access is limited and people don't have the means to pay for data access on their, mostly on their smartphones, and that they are just trying to connect people to 
to get online and to jo- enjoy the benefits of the internet, to understand what's good about the internet. They use, for example, the founder Mark Zuckerberg just used the example of a farmer who was able to get online via free basics and get information on growing crops and was able to increase crop productivity and crop yields and help his family. So that's that's the way they pitch it as a, a way for people to enjoy the benefits of the internet. I think before that, when Nokia was dominant in India, they also do the same situation with the Nokia feature phones with the farmers as well. And I think Google has done a lot in the similar vein, but more for the small and medium businesses and get them online. I guess this is a feature that all these US tech companies usually do when they are trying to build a new core base for the emerging markets. And now they are talking about flying drones and flying balloons in, in these regions as well. But coming back, why is the this internet.org have caused such a big controversy in India? Yeah, that's a great question. And speaking with uh, folks at Facebook, it sounds like it was unanticipated. I I think that they thought this is um, an altruistic initiative. We just want to connect people. And I think that they were a bit surprised by the backlash, which they point out as a very vocal minority. But nevertheless, many people in India see this project as disingenuous, I would say. People I talked to said, they're really Facebook, they're a obviously a for-profit company. Why are they calling this internet.org? They are not a nonprofit. All that they're really interested in, these people say, is hooking new users. And that they say Facebook's going into this into the country, India, Indonesia, for example, and saying, what's the way that we can get new users? Because uh, these people aren't online. Facebook needs to get new users. Obviously, it already has a ton, but its its user growth in developed markets like U.S. and Europe is still growing, but growing slowly. Whereas it's it's growing more and more. Obviously, in these countries where still so many people have yet to come online. So they say they're really just trying to hook new users in terms of net neutrality, the notion that internet providers shouldn't be able to control which websites users access. In terms of net neutrality, people say they're providing a walled garden. If you remember AOL, this term of a walled garden where you get online, but you can't really get get into the open internet. They say what they're doing is they're giving you access to Facebook and Messenger, but then they're handpicking sites that people can access. They're picking winners. How do they determine how they're picking these sites and it's not people these people say it's not it's not really the open internet it's a, a watered down version of the internet for emerging markets so the net neutrality is the principle that all internet service providers should enable access to all content applications regardless of the source and without favoring or blocking of any particular products or sites but for the free access does Facebook block any of this service based on what we know? Facebook says that the telcos and, and the government decide what's going to be offered and that they're not, Facebook says, we're not trying to pick which sites people can access. And they point out that, as I put to them in working on my story, well, if you want people to just get online, why don't you just give a bunch of money to the telcos and they can subsidize data access to whatever websites people want to access? They say there's no way that they can do that. It would just cost too much money. And and this is really the most feasible feasible way to do it. Again, they go back to the point that, as Mark Zuckerberg himself has said, uh, some internet access is better than none at all. But you know, there are many critics who feel that this is just a just a way for them to to get new users, basically. And you get the kind of the Electronic Frontier Foundation's equivalent in India making very vocal criticism about this on the net neutrality front, right? 
Right, right. You know, as one of the analysts put it to me, it's not internet.org, it's walledgarden.org. Yeah, they don't like the fact that it's a it's a company that's trying to that, that that's able to determine which part of the internet people people should access. And, and that said, I, I understand that criticism. I also understand that Facebook, you know, has has I believe good intentions to help people get online, but it's yeah, it's nevertheless a a pretty uh, a pretty controversial project in India. We also spoke with some users in Indonesia who said I just didn't expect it to be basically I didn't expect it to be so limited. I thought here's internet.org, it means I can get onto the internet, but then I open it and I can't get to certain search engines or I can't go to my favorite, you know, e-commerce website. So from the some of the users perspectives as well, it's it provides a more limited version of the web than they expected. So does the internet actually conflicts with privacy and security of the users? I mean, there are different perspectives to this question, right? For example, there's Facebook's perspective. What is that perspective like? They say it's there are no security problems. That's a criticism as well. Um, people say that, uh, if I believe the criticism that the data isn't encrypted, that's a, yeah another criticism as well. I think it's it just highlights, I think, the, the difficulty of for companies that are trying to increase web access, but that are also corporations that, you know, have market share and revenue and, you know, make money from emerging markets. How do you work to ensure that people are using your products, but also that you're not viewed as as being sort of cynical and manipulative? Right. And then there is the government regulatory body, such as the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India, which basically regulates the telecommunication company. So what are their perspective on in terms of privacy and security with regards to this internet.org? Yeah, they, they say they're looking at it and that it's, it's something they're considering. I think that there was a, the, the backlash also maybe perhaps from policymakers was unanticipated. When it all began, there were uh, several startups that said, oh, we see that people are, are objecting to this and we're all going to we're gonna sort of make a big show out of uh, backing out. And one of the activist groups put together a, a way for people to click through from their website to leave comments on the regulator's uh, website. So yeah, it's it's still a bit up in the air, but it's been uh, quite a, quite an interesting process in India. And but what about the consumers in these markets as well? Are they you know are they aware of all these privacy and security? Because you know in the US, when people talk about privacy security, you know everybody get on the drums on that. But in emerging markets, as far as I know, you know sometimes people don't even have the concept of privacy and security. Yeah, that's a good point, and we see this particularly. It, I, I look at cybersecurity as well, and and folks say that a lot of people in Southeast Asia, for example, have corporations have less of a. They're not quite as aware of the severity of cyber attacks out there. But yeah, that's a good point, and you know some people might say if you're a consumer coming online and you don't have any access at all, do you really care if your data is encrypted? If you just want to go to Wikipedia and look, look something up, or you just want to use Facebook. I think some people might point might might say that that argument is a, a bit petty. That uh, people who just want to use the internet for basic services, you know, are not going to get spied on by the NSA or or get their data intercepted by people who are trying to launch advanced malware attacks on them or anything. An interesting though other component is what's in it for the telcos. So from their perspective, they say, okay, Facebook, we're going to work with you. We're going to offer a free data through this platform and what the what the telcos gamble is that people who don't have internet access over time are going to get online through this through this platform and then discover what's good about the internet and then actually decide to become paying data customers and there's little data available about how few people uh, about how many people are doing it i talked to one telco in indonesia who said 
a, so only a very small percentage of people who come online through internet.org actually end up paying for data, but that's what's in it for the telcos. And, and so there's that component as well. Facebook says a significant portion do ultimately end up becoming uh, paying data customers, but that's an interesting component as well as is the what the telcos are doing in all of this. Is, is the same actually happening in India as well where they are not converting those users from internet.org into paid users? Or maybe yeah. the market's different. Yeah, it's it's. I wasn't able to to get a real definitive answer on that in India, but people I talked to were somewhat doubtful about the percentage of people who are converting to to paid users. But there are also. You know, lots of users in India are able to access free Wi-Fi in certain spots, so they don't pay for data and they just wait until they're on Wi-Fi, or or maybe they pay for a very very small amount of data, a dollar or two, and then make that last for a while. So I just have one question. Prior to this discussion, I actually done some research on reading different articles, different people putting up different positions on the Internet Dot controversy in India, and some people claimed that the Internet Dot was not a charity organization as per what Facebook has, is actually something within their corporate side of it. Is that true or false? Or do you have any sense about that? Yeah, no, it's it's part of Facebook as a company. It's not, I mean, I think that was one of the things that people pointed out. Why are you calling it .org? That's an internet designation for nonprofits. And no, it's it's not a nonprofit. It's part of, it's part of Facebook. It's not a separate nonprofit. It's part of their company. So it's kind of like a, within a growth team or international development team for Facebook, but basically focus on acquiring users for the emerging markets. Yeah, again, they say they're not, they're not in it to acquire users, that, they're, that their goal is to, just connect people around the world who otherwise wouldn't have internet access and they say millions of people have gotten online because of internet.org who wouldn't have otherwise but again people say ultimately that they want to get new users and they want to get people using using Facebook products and and I think Facebook would say of course we want people to enjoy the connectivity and the ability to connect with friends and family that Facebook provides as well. My final question, I mean, you hear a lot about controversy in India and Indonesia. Are there any places out in the world where this internet.org initiative or now we call Free Basics are working in some other places that maybe Africa or, you know, Middle East? (laughs) Yeah, they've they've launched it all over the world. There have been activist groups or internet rights groups from dozens of countries around the world who have kind of signed on to petitions expressing their displeasure. But India has definitely been the place where you've seen the most backlash. Of course, it's a huge country, so there's more people to to, to object to it than say a smaller country in uh, you know Central America or something. But but yeah, it's available all over the world. There's certainly been more backlash in India, and we spoke with some users in in Indonesia, which was where it launched just after India as well, who had some reservations about it. I guess this will be pretty interesting because I think Southeast Asia there will be some markets opening up, like for example Myanmar which has seen a lot of big growth in the last year in the telecommunications industry. So I guess any last word on internet.org initiative that we haven't covered? I would just say, you know, kind of watch this space because I think it's a really interesting study in how big tech firms are approaching the ability to tap new markets. So you know, if you're um, if you're Google or you're Twitter, you also want to be able to get new people to use your platforms in India, in Indonesia, in Myanmar, in all of these populous countries where people are more and more coming online. And I think again, it's sort of a delicate dance to work on 
to help increase internet access, but to do it in a way that I think people don't view as being cynical. So I think it's a really interesting project. You know, I, I'm definitely keen to, to see how it how it unfolds and how other companies also try to access some of these people coming online for the first time. That would be actually interesting because it interfaces with the mobile operating system side. So in the emerging markets, as we know, Android is probably very dominant and there is a lot of OEM making these Android phones out there. So I wanted to talk to you because this is also another interesting thing that's happening in India. And I know you happen to cover that is about Android one for the Alphabet group now, which is Google. Mm -hmm. So maybe can you just sort of give me an understanding about Android one and why it was launched originally, I think two years back and it failed. What happened? Yeah, it was announced two years back, and then I think it launched in India about a year ago. And what it was positioned as, from Google's perspective, was a sort of pure Android experience. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right. If, um, Android is dominant in most of the world. And in places like India, you have all of these local OEMs like Micromax, Lava, Carbon, Spice, that offer Android phones, but they sort of skin them in certain ways so that they can offer their own apps and, and different sort of flavors built into the phones. And Google pitched the Android One phone as a sort of pure Android experience where the system can be updated automatically and quickly when, it, when new updates to Android are available, which is um, an issue with some other phones where, from other manufacturers where sometimes they're selling older versions of Android or they sell one and it just never gets updated. Google wants people to use, obviously, the latest version of Android. And so they pitched it as a low-cost, or, or not not ultra-low-cost, but you know, $100 range, $100 US range phone that is not very expensive but performs well. And th- that was the main selling point, was that it's a pure Android experience. And it never took off. I think one of the reasons is there's enormous competition. There are phones available that I think consumers saw as being quite similar that were $20 or even more cheaper. And people didn't, from what I talked to, speaking with analysts who have looked at the issue in India, consumers didn't see what they got out of it. So the phone didn't do very well. Uh, Google has been pretty open about it not performing as well as they had hoped. So what we looked at was how they are sort of reimagining the project because they want people to use these phones and to, again, be closer to a pure uh, Android experience where people are using um, all the latest Google apps and not just on an Android phone but have nothing to do with with Google and, and they only use their phones, let's say, for WhatsApp and Facebook. Obviously, Google wants people to use its services. And I think that when it first started, it was a sub no, it's actually at US $135. And at that point in time, there's actually competitors, as you mentioned, for example, the Firefox OS is actually in the sub 30 US to $45. And so there is a lot of competition in this so-called, I, I will call it in emerging market, but it's actually internet for the phone for the masses, which is actually a featured phone. And that yeah. one is actually yeah. very fast because I've seen one deployed. The, the point of it is that it also... Like what Internet Org is doing is trying to get Google's access into the emerging world through using their apps, right? So it's actually another way of getting into the market, but actually going through the route of the operating system. Right. And they say we want to offer people the best product. We want to offer a secure product that gets updated. I think it, it would be no secret that they want people to use Gmail, Maps, the App Store, all, also Google Play, I should say, and, and all of the 
all the Google services, you know, they believe that they're good and they work and they want people to use them and they want to avoid situations where people aren't aren't engaging with them. You know, it's 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 interesting if you look at a company like Micromax, which we've written about, my colleagues in India in India have written about, and they just released dozens and dozens of various models that have you know, different kinds of cameras or different form factors or different things that might apply to different kinds of users. So there are really tons of options out there for Indian consumers at, you know, really highly segmented price points where there's just a ton of competition. And I think maybe Android One got lost in all of that. They are now starting to work with the Indian phone makers again. What, what, what is happening? actually? Yeah, so what we reported was that they are, Google is going to be offering manufacturers, which they partnered with before, more flexibility in in the components and how they put the phones together. So we understood that one of the complaints from some manufacturers was that the requirements, the tech specs for building the original phone were too rigid and that they weren't able to differentiate their products enough. Uh, in, in many times, um, the phone was competing with some of their own, some of the OEM's own phones. So we understand that they're working to relaunch, relaunch the project and they'll give manufacturers more of a, an ability to customize and to use different components so that they can perhaps put their own kind of uh, flavor on the phone. The reason why it's not taking off in India initially, is it really Google or the OEM makers? I mean, specs is one reason and the other one is their compet- competition. Are there any other reasons that actually also that it's not taking off? For, for example, Xiaomi is selling pretty hot in India and it's also running on stock Android as well. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I, again, I just go back to the notion of perhaps customers not understanding why they would want the phone. So if you're someone from a, a, a small to mid-sized city in India and this is your first smartphone, let's say, you've always had a feature phone, very inexpensive, and you're in the shop. I mean, that's, that's actually another issue that people told us is that initially the phone was only available online a huge percentage of handsets in India are sold in retail stores, and so it wasn't available at first, at least in, in some retail stores. But you go into the store, you're a consumer, you don't have a huge amount of disposable income to, to spend on this device, and you see, you see it, and you see other cheaper or even perhaps slightly more expensive phones from someone like Xiaomi, which perhaps is a better known brand in India and has all of its own attendant interesting sort of sexiness attached to the brand and you see Micromax's you know various offerings for, at that same price or lower I think that the issue would be why are you going to buy that one if you don't even maybe know what Android is why are you going to buy one that's called Android One so I think that was I think that was the main issue in, in speaking with analysts but we'll see they're, they're going to take another shot at it in just this whole conversation about the smartphone the operating systems I'm also looking at Apple's recent earnings I think they hit their first billion with India Despite the number of customers, I think in India is only less than a million. Here's the underlying thing. Apple is also in. And I know Android is still dominant in the emerging market. But from what I've observed in China is that everybody will take the cheap phones first, but their aspirational brand will eventually end up to be Apple. So do you think that this Android One competition will also fail again because there's so many competitors out there? Well, I think in the in the case of the Android One, I don't think it would... I don't think it would suffer from an increasing popularity of Apple's devices since they're so much more expensive in India. But but yeah, that's a that's a good point. I, I did see that figure about uh, iPhones uh, or, or Apple in India, and I think some people have pointed out that's still a pretty small percentage given their overall global sales. But I'm sure that they are also eyeing India, thinking about how they can make their phones more attractive there. I mean, obviously, I mean, there's been for a long time 
speculation that they could release a much more cheaper phone. That was a couple of years ago, and they, they haven't done that. But I think that they would probably also look at the size of the market and say, even if we only capture a certain percentage of consumers who can afford to buy our comparatively much more expensive phones, they'd still be happy with that. I would, But I, I was, it was interesting when I was in India... About a month ago now, I did notice uh, quite a lot of advertising for the new, I guess it was the 6 Plus, iPhone 6 Plus, that was being released in India. And if memory serves, it, it's being released in a quicker fashion in India than some of their previous phones. So I did notice a lot more advertising in various cities, airports in India for that phone than I had for some of their previous devices. So you actually see that Apple is actually going to be much more aggressive with the high-end market but just keep the medium and the low end market intact. The other way is to actually sell an older version of their phone, but now they're just going in with the latest iPhone 6S Plus and say, and assumes that there will be people buying it in India. Yeah, that, I think that's right. And, and there are people buying them. And it's an enormous country. You know, you have the proliferation of these online retailers like Flipkart, Snapdeal, et cetera, that are offering really great deals on some of these phones. So yeah, it's, it's an enormous country. I think... Obviously, lots of people I talk to point out that don't get don't get caught in the trap and thinking that everything is about price in India. Yes, there are people who will buy the very cheapest smartphone because that's all that makes economic sense for them. But there are also lots of middle class or, or richer people who who don't have the disposable income of somebody in a developing market, but they may be willing to save longer for a, a really top-end device, not just from Apple, but maybe from Samsung. So there's, it's a very diverse market. It's over a billion people, and there are lots of people to buy lots of different kinds of products. So I think we covered about mostly the tech, big tech companies in India in the last probably half an hour. I wanted to talk to you because I know you're also covering the startup ecosystem in India and talent shortage. And truth be told, I haven't found anyone interesting to actually talk about India. Do I have a lot of requests for talking about the Indian ecosystem? India has recently had a lot of unicorn startups like Flipkart, Snapdeal. So there's some issues about recruiting talent. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, this was Bernard, a story I did recently about how some of these big companies have seen just a huge influx in venture capital and they want to expand quickly. They want to gain market share. They want to gain new users and they need to do it immediately. And so what's that? what that has resulted in is, is a sort of talent crunch in some companies where the people who can do the the sort of like most cutting edge parts of coding, whether it's sort of big data stuff or mobile app development, or you know not not just your standard sort of web development um, or old fashioned software engineering, but the really kind of cutting edge stuff, they're having trouble finding these people. They're in demand, as of course they are everywhere in the world. They're increasingly paying more and more money for these people, and you know doing things like offering people to double their salary if they come from another startup. Again, of course we see this in, in Silicon Valley and in many other places where, where tech talent is really in demand. But in India, it's been a more recent development over the last you know, year or two where suddenly these companies are totally flush with cash. They need to grow immediately. And so they're pulling out all the stops to recruit people from other startups, you know, offering some of the perks that you'd, you'd hear of from other places free rides to work and good food and fun offices and that sort of thing. I spoke with some coders who have you know, been able to jump around from job to job and double their salary in a short amount of time and getting inundated on LinkedIn from recruiters who are you know, offering to double their salary. And, and so it's an interesting development given that so many people in the U.S. particularly think of India and they think of tech and they think of big outsourcers, right? Like Infosys, TCS, Wipro. 
and they think, how can there be a tech, ta- a tech talent shortage in India? It's home to all these you know, billion people, many of whom you know, millions of people work in the outsourcing industry. And so it's somewhat counterintuitive that even though you have all these people who have good tech skills, haven't been able to keep up with the demand of what these, these companies want. This comes to the question, right? Because of this competition of technology talent, and it also creates problems for outsourcing companies like Wipro and Infosys, right? Because you will start seeing that these India startups will go to these companies and start pulling talent over with higher salaries, better perks. Would that yeah. lead to the US companies tr- moving the outsourcing somewhere? Because we, the, the, the whole point of outsourcing is to make sure that you know the wages stay minimum, you know, trying to be cost savings for big companies. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the bigger issue is what some of the most recent trends in computing mean for the likes of these big outsourcers. So a colleague of mine has looked at what the world of the cloud means for these companies. So suddenly you have all these big clients outside of India who are able to take advantage of cloud technologies and don't need to deploy dozens or hundreds of people to manage their networks from somewhere else and can take advantage of these more efficient systems and some of the outsourcing companies are are definitely feeling feeling the crunch from this change in how computing has developed. That's one issue. I don't know about the U.S.'s uh, approach to it all and what they see happening with, with some of these outsourcers, but one interesting thing in talking to startup founders and, and workers is that they generally don't see outsourcing companies, even though they, ha- they employ millions of people, as good producers of the best tech talent. They point out that People in India who tend to go work for outsourcing companies, this is a generalization, but this is what people say, that they're looking for a traditional you know, nine-to-five job that's secure and that is going to be lifetime employment, maybe not at that company, but, but that they'll generally work in outsourcing companies. And founders told me what they're looking for really is a new breed of tech worker who is willing to take risks, creative, and willing to come work for a company that's not proven or that's going to ask them to work longer hours or that's going to have different demands on them. So the startups are, are looking at these pools of talent and saying, actually, we need somebody totally different. We want somebody either who's right out of university, who's been teaching himself or herself how to code, or somebody who's from a different startup who knows what it means to work for a company that is you know, trying to deliver a product yesterday mm. and knows what it means to just really kill themselves and get it done. So they're looking at these, these outsourcing companies saying, that's not the kind of people we want. So there's going to also be a cultural problem, isn't it? This is more than just changing the perks and compensation. It's also trying to change the culture of the typical Indian information worker. Right. Another interesting thing is people saying... Uh, actually, it's become so cool and, and so admirable now to work for startups in India, whereas it used to be that working for an outsourcer was a, a great way to get into India's middle class and to have a reliable career and support a family. And now young people view it as cool to be able to go get out of university and go work for an outsourcing company. In fact, somebody even used the word peer pressure. <laughs> if you're a smart young person in a good uni- Indian university, you almost feel peer pressure to go work for a, a startup because they're you know they're sexy. Also, obviously, there's always the issue for many Indian young people what their parents think. And so for a long time, people have wanted, people have said their parents want them to get reliable, good jobs that are going to be stable. And that now 
they're actually starting to perhaps be more, a little more accepting of going to work for a company that they maybe haven't heard of or that they only have started to hear of because they've seen billboards in the last few years about some new e-commerce company. So I think there is a cultural shift, shift happening where these companies are becoming well no, better known. The path to working for a startup and becoming a, a larger tech company is, is more common now. A lot of these startup uh, founders and entrepreneurs are very well known. They're almost like rock stars in India, getting mobbed at tech conferences with people taking selfies with them. I mean, it's, so it's, I think things are really changing and there's a cultural shift happening. Well, I thought that, I mean, with the recent Sasha Nadella's ascension to CEO of Microsoft and Sundar Pichai to Google, I've seen this joke from all my Indian friends on Twitter saying that, oh, now, you know, Indian families want their kids to go to join US tech companies and be CEOs. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's been a long tradition of Indian origin people obviously work in tech valleys, in Silicon Valley. So, yeah, and you're seeing more and more of them now come back to India to create startups or work at startups. And I think it's a combination of the timing being right in terms of more funding ve- being available, the, the market being in a nation stage and growth to come, and also lifestyle. So if you've been toiling, toiling away in the U.S., let's say, and you can come back and work on an interesting new project and be closer to your family, your extended family, then that's an added benefit. So yeah, that's an interesting trend as well. This lies with a very interesting thing. I mean, if you look at comparatively with India and China, because they are both billion populations, and China has credited with a very vibrant startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley with, I mean, Zhongguanzhen and Shenzhen are almost on par. I mean, this is only a recent phenomenon in India, right? Because India is an open economy and it has the influence of also US companies with the outsourcing phenomenon and also it's much more open to even US tech companies coming in to compete. I know Amazon has already put in a billion or two to compete with Flipkart. Mm-hmm. Can India actually maintain this pace in creating its own startup ecosystem that can rival uh, Zhongguanzhen or even uh, Silicon Valley? Yeah, Bernard, that's a great question. It's one a lot of people are thinking about. If you look at the fundamentals of the market, it's an enormous country. The internet access is expanding. I mean, one of the challenges is that the mobile internet connection speeds, and so many people in India are connecting on smartphones, but mobile internet connection, mobile internet connection speeds uh, are not great. One challenge is is rolling out broadband internet so that more people. I mean, that's been it. That was a key in in China blossoming and China's internet economy blossoming was that there was this rapid deployment of increased high speed internet access, so so people viewed and and were able to use the web as a viable place to communicate and buy things. But yeah, I, I think there's enormous potential. Obviously, investors and startup companies are taking it are trying to take advantage of that. One issue, though, is also communicating to consumers that they can trust online services. So you see in India, for example, lots of e-commerce companies not only dealing with very difficult logistics. So obviously, there's been a lot of money poured into the e-commerce industry. They the one aspect we've looked at is how difficult it is to get perhaps a low cost. We actually followed a, a very low cost sari that somebody ordered from one part of India all, and, and tracked it all the way to a different part of India. And you know it had to go on flights and trucks and a motorcycle delivery and touch the hands of tons of people along the way for a very low cost item. So how much is the company making on that particular item? And you think about the scale. So, and I think you, lots of internet companies or e-commerce companies are offering cash on delivery. So if you you don't have a credit card penetration in India is very low. So it's not like Amazon in the US where you give them your, or Singapore, you give them your 
your credit card details, you're locked into the system and you just click one button and buy. These companies are also having to deal with the fact that a few people have credit cards or don't want, don't, don't want to use them online because internet fraud is a problem. So they offer cash on delivery. So you order it, the, the thing comes and you, you pay cash. As founders call it, educating the market is another, another issue. But I think that there is enormous room for growth. Challenges would be infrastructure, getting more people online, getting them to use these services um, and uh, kind of making it work a bit easier. And you will see shift towards this new startup ecosystem such that India would have its own equivalent of the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent at some point. No, no. Well, I think that the difference in, in, you know, obviously in China is that there it's much more difficult for big foreign operators to get in. So you have the, you have the rise of these native Chinese giants. I think it's somewhere down the lines. Obviously, you look at the amount of the percentage of, for example, retail that's conducted online now in India is quite small compared to China and people are you know have made the comparison of what the numbers look like in India now compared to China four or five years ago and projecting that it will that that will happen no I don't think it's overly optimistic to think that there will be a rise of you know big homegrown Indian internet companies but I think that the difference would be that you know Facebook is is already dominant there Google is dominant Twitter is widely used so and messaging apps WhatsApp is huge there already are the presence of a lot of big international tech companies companies but certainly the demographics are there you know as the economy expands incomes will rise and of course again to go back to the just the proliferation of low cost smartphones prices will keep falling quality will get better and more and more people will just be able to to get online and participate not to mention not just the US companies the Chinese companies are not going to India too exactly absolutely they and Japanese investors are are investing in in local startups in India and in in some sense, if you look at international venture capital, if you think that China is already kind of locked up, it's hard to get in on the ground floor there. There aren't. There's only one other billion plus person economy that's going to see the growth that India is. So, if you're looking for wide open, uh, relatively wide open places with huge amounts of people, India is is going to be top of your list. And I think there's going to be a lot more to discuss about annually. I probably will get you back at some point to talk about this in more detail. So, newly. My last question, how do my audience find you? Well, they can look for me at WSJ or WSJD.com, which is our I mean, our homepage and then our home for our digital coverage. On Twitter, I'm uh, at Newly. It's N-E-W-L-E-Y. That's a good place to look on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And then my own my own website is just Newly.com, N-E-W-L-E-Y.com. If you just Google me, you'll find me. There's not many people out there with my name. <laughs> yeah, definitely very unique name. Yeah, you can find me at bleongcw or at bernaleong.com or you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Acast drop a favorable rating and also upload us in Product Hunt if possible we are always there too so Newly, thank you very much for coming on the show and I hope to speak to you again my pleasure, thanks for having me Bernard